A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Radio Westeros, House of the Dragon, Season 1, Episode 2, The Rogue Prince. Hello and welcome to Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy and it's great to talk about the second episode of House of the Dragon called The Rogue Prince. Today we'll be reacting to and evaluating this episode as well as making plenty of book comparisons because we are hardcore book fans so you'll get some insights related to the text, starting with the fact that the episode title is a direct reference to the short story about Daemon Targaryen that appeared in the collection Rogues back in 2014, so we can expect a pretty Daemon-heavy episode. We'll avoid spoiling the future plot of House of the Dragon as much as we can, but we'll have a spoilers all books section at the end, and we'll give our Unsullied audience a giant heads up for that. So whatever your A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones background, we have a lot to offer and we'll certainly be ready to fill in the blanks about lore and story depth that the show understandably skirts over. So this episode jumped over six months in the timeline and with the key characters having been introduced last week, there was room for extra, extra characterization as the writers turned the drama dial up several notches. So in spite of the fact that at 52 minutes long, this is by far the shortest episode of the season, there's lots to talk about today. And so let's begin by saying hello to my Radio Westeros co-host, Lady Gwyn. Hello. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Happy to be here to talk about the Rogue Prince. Uh, welcome back, Emily. Hi, glad to be back. <laughs> yeah, we got lots of good stuff lined up for you today. Uh, but before we begin our analysis, we want to mention that Radio Westeros is supported by our patrons, uh, who get all manner of uh, patron perks, like early access to episodes and a handful of exclusive episodes. So if you want to be a patron of the show, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Radio Westeros. And we are going to begin with a quick shout out to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Daniel, and Crispy, the Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Mora, Sister Winter, Maltu, John Rickarian, and M.T. Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, the Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Jab Hot Dog Shop, House Motto, We Forge the Chains We Wear in Life, 
And good evening to Sir Tim, who is joining us in the chat again. Yeah, hello everyone, and thanks to our patrons. So why don't we begin at the very beginning and talk about the intro sequence. Last week, we were all expecting the debut of this new intro sequence, but with a prologue scene kicking things off there, they decided to skip until this week. I was very excited to see what they'd come up with, but I'm afraid not everyone was blown away in the end. Lady Gwyn, why don't you tell us what you thought? Okay, I will. <laughs> Still uh, not quite sure how I feel about it. I mean, there, there are certain elements that I really do like, but after several passes, I still felt that it was really a bit inscrutable. Uh, in my opinion, something that moves at this pace ideally shouldn't require a frame-by-frame -frame analysis for the viewer to understand what's going on. Uh, that sort of deep dive, I think, should really be uh, reserved for, you know, symbolism and Easter eggs, that sort of thing. The Game of Thrones astrolabe intro was comprehensible on first watch to be a map of the the settings of, that were shown in the show, uh, although obviously there were other things that you could see on a closer look. But uh, sp speaking of closer looks, I do want to mention that there is a great Twitter, twi Twitter thread out there, uh, which we've retweeted in our timeline, or you can find it at Conqueror's Crown, and that breaks down the sequence frame by frame. So if you are interested in figuring all that stuff out, uh, we highly recommend that. So of course it is a family tree motif, which lots of us had speculated about early on, given the importance of family tree to this storyline. And the the, um, the sequence moves through the model of old Valyria that we see Viserys building throughout all of his scenes or many of his scenes. And there is a you know blood flow that represents the bloodline flowing from old Valyria right through the Conqueror and down to his descendants in this story. So definitely check out that deep dive again, Conqueror's Crown on Twitter. And I do think it's worth noting that for me, I think there's there's room for this sequence to evolve as new family members are added and some die off. So it could grow on me over time. And I also seem to be in a minority of people who are happy that they stayed with the classic music. So there's that. What do you think, Yoke Boy? I'll be honest, I didn't really like the intro too much. I think that an intro is a shop's uh, show shop front. I just felt confused by the sequence. And, you know, that, that's me as a hardened book reader. Imagine how bewildered the casual fans feel, like someone like my dad. I imagine him, him just not having a clue what's going on. So one thing you have to consider is that you're going to see this intro at least 40 times and many more if you're going to do rewatches of, th of this show. So not not sure how many times I want to immerse myself in this river of blood concept. And I, I do find the references to the lineage a bit unclear and esoteric. Of course, it is a neat concept, and I do enjoy thinking about that. It's riffing on Viserys' in-universe diorama, but perhaps a bit too high concept for me. With them using the same theme song from the original show, it does feel a bit like a poor version of that sequence. So maybe I think they could have gone in a different direction or at least made things clearer. So, yeah, you didn't mind the theme tune being used again, Lady Gwyn. I will say that I, I was looking forward to a new, a new one to sort of give this show a fresh identity 
remember that House of the Dragon could next focus on a different Targaryen generation and could run on and on. So if it seems a little jaded now, it's going to seem seem a lot more so somewhere down the line. You know, there could be another 100 episodes of House of the Dragon, even more. So, yeah, you said it might grow on you. I don't think it'll be growing on me, unfortunately. What do you think, Emily? Yeah, I don't have a ton to add here, but I, I do agree with you, Yoke Boy. I expect I'll probably hit the skip button more times often than not on future rewatches. Okay, so why don't we start analyzing the action? And we'll begin with Rhaenyra naming Kristen Cole to the Kingsguard. Early in the episode, Rhaenyra attempts to assert herself in the small council over the issue of the Stepstones and is basically told to run along, little girl. An early indication that in spite of the months that have passed since she was invested as Princess of Dragonstone and her father's heir, She's still just his cupbearer now, and her input is neither valued nor desired. Compare this with her father's predecessors as Prince of Dragonstone, first Aemon and her grandfather Balon, who both spent a lot of time working closely with Jaehaerys. And of course, Jaehaerys himself was around Rhaenyra's age when he ascended the throne. So it's not necessarily her age, as her father indicates, but a sex that's preventing her being involved. For what it's worth, the idea of using dragons as a show of force was a good one, as we'll see later in the episode, and one that Lord Corliss at least appreciated and won't have forgotten. Lady Gwen, what do you think? Well, I want to focus now on uh, Sir Kristen Cole. There happens to be an opening in the White Cloaks due to the death of the legendary Sir Ryan Redwine, who is mentioned many times in the main series, I believe first in Game of Thrones, probably in a Bran chapter, although I did not fact check that. <laughs> Just going off memory. Uh, Ryan Redwine served in the Kingsguard for uh, 45 years, uh, obviously first under Jaehaerys and then under Viserys. He was replaced as Lord Commander by Sir Harold Westerling, who we met early in episode one as Rhaenyra's sworn shield. And it's Sir Harold who sort of ushers Rhaenyra out to a balcony in Mager's Holdfast so that she can review the choices. And there they are. Uh, what a great bunch of tourney knights. Rhaenyra's not really impressed by this collection <laughs> immediately. She thinks they all seem very gallant and very good at capturing poachers. Uh, but we get to see her obvious intelligence at work when she demands a knight with actual battle experience. I found this interesting because in this she seems to be channeling her very well-known family member and former queen, Visenya Targaryen, who famously refused to let Aegon the Conqueror host attorney for the selection of the first Knights of the King's Guard. And here's a quote from Fire and Blood about Vis what Visenya feels about the selection of King's Guard Knights. To be a Kingsguard knight required more than just skill at arms, she pointed out. She would not risk placing men of uncertain loyalty about the king, regardless of how well they performed in a melee. She would choose the knights herself. The champions she selected were young and old, tall and short, dark and fair. They came from every corner of the realm. Some were younger sons, others the heirs of ancient houses who gave up their inheritances to serve the king. One was a hedge knight, another bastard-born. All of them were quick, strong, observant, skilled with sword and shield, and devoted to the king. 
So obviously this is a comparison we'll be keeping an eye on because in choosing Kristen Cole over many who Sir Otto uh, clearly considered to be worthier choices, Rhaenyra herself made a decision worthy of Visenya and those counselors who hurried her out of their meeting moments earlier would have been well served to remember that while the Conqueror was obviously the last word in ruling the kingdom, his sister queens were highly involved in the day-to-day governance and decision-making, and they were not women to be trifled with. But that was another time, and the counselors of this era obviously have no such illusions about the role of women in their government. Yeah, absolutely. I do appreciate that Rhaenyra chose Cole for a logical reason here. You know, he was battle-tested, like you said, uh, compared to some of these more esteemed knights uh, whose experience was limited to the tourney grounds or, you know, bandits. Rhaenyra obviously finds Kristen Cole easy on the eyes, yet she's able to defend her choice with a well-reasoned argument that neither the experienced Lord Commander nor the more slippery hand of the king could strongly argue against. While Sir Harold seems impressed by her reasoning, Otto seems frustrated that he can't simply cow this girl into submission like he does with his own daughter or even with some of the other counselors. I will note that Otto suggested Rhaenyra go handle this, implying that the men of the small council need to talk privately. So he obviously must have hustled afterwards to arrive in time to micromanage the one duty he suggested she could handle. That this early in the season, we're seeing all sorts of allies and rivals form. Uh, and I think Otto and Rhaenyra will be an interesting pairing to watch, uh, as we'll see again even later this episode. So um, another pairing that we see early in the episode is Alicent and Rhaenyra. Uh, we see them in the Sept. Uh, that The first scene together is in the Grand Sept. Uh, remember that this is, you know, a couple generations before the great Sept of Baelor is built. I wanted to say something about sort of the framing of this scene. The uh, Alicent, well, you mentioned that the king, I think that the king asks her not to say anything. So she just puts her in a very awkward position regarding these meetings. And also I wanted to point out that increasingly it's seeming like she is enjoying them. So uh, when she tells Rhaenyra that the king's got to remarry, my opinion, the scene just took on a different tone all at once for the viewer. And I thought it was worth noting that the scene is framed at this point with these two young women on either side of the central altar that, uh, you know, they're opposing each other almost when this issue comes up. But then they come together at the center when the talk turns to the emotional issues that are troubling Rhaenyra, her desire to talk to her father and about her mother and her grief for her mother. I noticed that uh, Alison almost seems to be schooling Rhaenyra on the seven. Um, she's consistently framed as being very devout, which adds to the gentle sort of nurturing personality that she's portrayed as having so far. This scene, I think, pairs very well with the heart tree scene from episode one in that both show these kind of intimate moments between the, the two of them. And they both take place in a sacred space. Uh, in fact, in, in both, we see that the two are physically very close when they're discussing personal matters, but that a physical distance exists or arises between them when the matter of the succession is mentioned. So I think it's really marvelous framing and foreshadowing, really, of what's to come. 
So Allison is in a difficult position in the sept, particularly because she's fresh from her latest audience with the king. Viserys says Rhaenyra would not understand these talks that they're having, pressuring Allison to keep them quiet. He also says that he wishes Rhaenyra would approach him. He sometimes would rather face the black dread than his 15-year-old daughter. I have to note this continues to establish Viserys' weak and cowardly nature, unable to openly talk to his grieving daughter. Maybe don't try the whole teens are so hard to talk to line when you're talking to a teen girl, her best friend. Not only that, but you'd rather face Balerion. Like, okay, there's a lot of dragons out there, but that was your dragon. Like, not exactly the most intimidating one you may have to face. Anyway, I digress, but the point is Allison's got a lot of pressure on her, uh, both from her father to keep up those visits in general and from the king to keep them private. So when she meets Rhaenyra on the Sept, Allison's demeanor towards her friend has clearly changed from the previous episode. She's noticeably uncomfortable and walking a careful line in conversation there. She defends Viserys' need to remarry, though Rhaenyra is obviously struggling with that reality. Allison obviously still cares about her friend, offering the princess advice on her grieving mother later in the conversation. Uh, she even uses some information that she got from Viserys to coach Rhaenyra on how to better connect with her dad. She says that uh, in connecting to her own father, uh, when I wish to talk to him, I know that I must make the effort, nudging Rhaenyra to try the same. Excellent. So why don't we move on to some of the setup for a battle or battles that are going to come probably in the next couple of episodes, right? I'm talking about the Stepstones and Kragas Crabfeeder at work. So whereas Game of Thrones had Joffrey, the Mountain, Ramsay, and so on, House of the Dragon is less clear-cut about who is the hero and who is the villain. This has been said so many times already, it's become a cliche, but House of the Dragon does veer more towards the notion of greyness that every character is human acting for their own interests and their, and with their own impulses. However, now we see a common enemy, Kragas Drahar, known as the Crab Feeder, torturing their captives by staking them in the sand and encouraging armies of mean crabs to feast on their flesh. <laughs> well, these victims are still alive, of course. That made it even worse when you, when you saw someone moving with a crab eating them. So... With no White Walkers and no pure 100% psychopaths within the court, House of the Dragon at last has a sort of big bad, someone we can all root for to be taken down. Don't expect to be able to de detect any grey notes from Crab Feeder, although you could argue that from the perspective of a hungry, hungry crab, he's their hero at least. So this increasing focus on a depraved invader will inject some conflict and action into the show while the seeds of the civil war are slowly being nurtured to fruition in the main plot. Lady Gwyn? Well, there is one grey note about Krag Estrehar. Uh, if you thought you noticed grey patches on his skin in those fragmented close-up shots, you are correct. The director did confirm in the After the Episode featurette that the crab feeder has grayscale. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see if this has any relevance to the plot going forward or if it's just sort of window dressing. Ditto the fact that he also is wearing what appears to be a Sons of the Harpy mask from the marine plotline in Game of Thrones. Will there be an explanation for this, or is it just an Easter egg for fans? I guess we'll have to wait and see. 
and uh, just because I always do like to point out the differences in adaptation in the book, Crabfeeder is a Lyceni admiral who works directly for the Triarchy. But in House of the Dragon, it's implied that while his operation might be kind of shadow-funded by the Triarchy, he's more of an independent operator. There is a period of time in Fire and Blood when Westerosi ships are happy enough to pay his tolls in exchange for him dealing with the pirates and the Stepstones, something which is alluded to in Episode 1, but it's ultimately glossed over in favor of showing him directly inflicting harm on Westerosi and specifically Valerian ships and sailors. Also worthy of note is that the Stepstone scenes were filled on location in Cornwall, not too far from one of the Cornish locations that was used for the exterior shots of High Tide at Driftmark, St. Michael's Mount, which we've yet to see, but is my most anticipated filming location. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that too. I really enjoy how the show is teasing out these snippets of the Stepstones to get the audience more invested and ready for the conflict to come, especially the casual viewer. Um, after the first episode where the master of ships Corliss Valarian's concern over the Stepstones was kind of brushed off by the council, the audience might have believed that his risk assessment about the crab feeder was overblown. By opening the episode with the horrors that the crab feeder is exacting on now Westerosi sailors, it's becoming more clear that the threat is significant. Uh, in the very next scene, we see Corliss's righteous anger boil over in the council, council over four lost ships demanding action. He makes a secondary point here that due to Damon's actions taking Dragonstone and flouting Viserys' orders for the last six months, others are watching to see if House Targaryen and, by extension, Westeros, are still a power to be feared and respected. It's uncertain how much Lord Corliss knows about the crab feeder's vicious tactics or his grayscale at this stage, but he's a savvy enough sailor and traitor to understand the vital position of the stepstones that they hold in relation to Westerosi shipping lanes, as we've talked about before. Uh, I really can't wait to see the crab feeder in combat, as well as the, sne- the sea snake and his uh, prospective ally, Damon. I also want to say, I'm used to friendlier crabs in A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I think we all are. Mm -hmm, Might not be mm -hmm. laughing a lot at this one, but maybe not laughing along with him. So after this sort of particularly fractious small council scene where Corliss is venting his ire over what's happening in the Stepstones, Rhaenys and Corliss Valerian make a power play in a, they have a kind of private meeting with the king and they talk about that, you know, the, the perspective of Westeros perhaps being weak. They give this very blunt evaluation of what's happening politically. And then they offer their daughter, 12-year-old Lena, as Viserys' new queen. So on the one hand, what an elegant solution that the babe in the belly should be married to Viserys because it unites two competing claims that date back to the deaths of Prince Aemon, Rhaenys' father, and Prince Balon, Viserys' father. But we'll have more to say about that in a minute. I think I want to say that one thing that's notable about the TV adaptation is the condensing of the storyline and these corresp- there's some corresponding adjustments to characters' ages. In Fire and Blood, Jaehaerys' first succession crisis occurred when Prince Aemon died and Lena was born in 92 AC, making Lena actually older than Rhaenyra by several years. But in House of the Dragon, the succession issue seems to have been streamlined and is limited to that Great Council of 101, 
presumably to simplify the succession story and line everything up with the Great Council. Emma's death and Lena's birth are both moved forward by five years or so. so. Effectively in the show, Viserys gets another five years with his wife so that Lena ends up still being 12 years old at the time that this succession, uh, this suggestion of a marriage is made. I really appreciate the attention to detail that the show is having to keep up with in order to keep these potentially wonky changes kind of logical and still making story sense. I mean, they didn't just age everybody equally. They've had to make choices about uh, everybody and how they fit into the story that they're telling. Speaking of which, it's also worth noting that in Fire and Blood, Viserys was only 28 when this match was suggested. So that's still a big age difference. Um, But 16 years is a lot more palatable than what we appear to see in the show. The character of Viserys was aged up considerably because Paddy Considine is actually uh, 48 years old. And uh, I think that one change they maybe could have made to, you know, avoid some of the ickiness of that scene is to not age him up enough or as much. Uh, you know, there's ways of with makeup and visual effects that you can make people appear younger in in t- film. So uh, just for a couple of episodes before one of the big time jumps, that would have been nice. But anyhow, they didn't do that. Uh, so we got, you know, late 40s Viserys uh, being proposed as a match for 12-year-old Lena. Fun fact, Lena's character is so young that she's actually played by three actors uh, there's going to be a young Lena following child Lena, which I think happens uh, maybe one or two more episodes. And uh, then after the big time jump mid-season, she will be played by an adult actor. Back to House Valerian's power play. You get Rhaenys and Corlys in this scene are just so incredible. They, they clearly feel like they have the influence to speak freely with the king. And there is, like I said, quite a bit of blunt talk going on. And there is also a hilarious joke. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious because I'm a big family tree nerd. When Viserys tells Rhaenys that she's his favorite cousin. Since the death of his wife, Emma Aaron, Rhaenys technically is his only cousin. It's kind of reminded me of when I tell my kids, a boy and a girl, that they're my favorite son or daughter. <laughs> <laughs> technically correct. <laughs> It's definitely dad joke territory. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you've talked a lot about Rainey, so I'll I'll dive into Corley's a little bit more. I did get a chance to talk about him in the preview episode, but now that we're now we're actually seeing him as a political player. I want to kind of revisit and contextualize his place in Westeros a little bit. Throughout the second episode, we see him framed as a very powerful and wealthy lord, one actually worthy to suggest a royal marriage pact without it being the overreach that Sir Otto is quick to call it. Apparently, Steve Toussaint read Tywin lines when auditioning for the role of Corliss Velaryon, and that really makes perfect sense because there are a lot of parallels between those two characters. Both are somewhat, you know, within the context of of (laughs) being lords, self-made, as far as the aristocracy is concerned. Tywin spent his life working to lift House Lannister back to what he felt was its proper status as former kings of the Westerlands, or or at least very powerful lords, following a very weak rulership of his father, Lord Titus. 
Similarly, Lord Corliss spent his early years building significant wealth and sea power for his house. While the Valerians are an ancient house of old Valyria and were already considered a sea power, Corliss significantly improved their reputations and developed a new seat at Driftmark into a booming capital of trade in Westeros. At the time of the main series, the Sea Snake is still considered the the main series. The Sea Snake is still actually considered the most powerful, most well-known Valarian in history. Thinking back to that line from the original trailer for House of the Dragon, uh, that line, history does not remember blood, it remembers names. Uh, it's actually a very fitting statement for Corlys, given how history remembers him, while the power of House Valarian in general has waned significantly since his time. All of this wealth, personal success, and of course his Targaryen dragon-riding wife, the queen who never was, Corlys has earned a significant amount of reputation and swagger, which he wields in this episode. Much like Tywin, he uses the status that he feels he has to attempt to broker a royal marriage, just like uh, Tywin did between Rhaegar and Cersei. In contrast to the manipulative, kind of behind-the-scenes plotting of characters like Otto Hightower or House Tyrell in the main series, Corliss and Tywin make their moves openly here, feeling that their status gives them the power to do so. Yep, that's true. Then you get in an adjacent scene, Rhaenyra observing her father talking and walking with Lena. And she seems kind of resigned to the fact that he's going to remarry, but she's still clinging to her own position as his heir. Uh, Princess Rhaenys is also there watching, though, and we see a very frank exchange between the two princesses. Rhaenys is certainly not happy about offering her little girl to her cousin, but she also seems resigned about it. She knows that this is the order of things, and all things considered, it would get her daughter the title, if not the power, that Rhaenys clearly thinks was her due. Rhaenyra, young and idealistic as she is, declares that she's going to make a new order, but Rhaenys tells her something that really feels weighted in prophecy. She says men would rather set the realm to the torch than see a woman ascend the Iron Throne. So I got the sense that Rhaenys, having been rejected by the patriarchy, is dedicated to advancing herself and her family as much as she can within its bounds. She's certainly a powerful woman, but Rhaenyra really seems to scorn this approach, mostly because she wants to break those boundaries. So it's going to be very interesting to see how the relationship between these two women evolves over the course of the series. Yeah. You know, in interviews, Eve Best, who plays Rainey's, said that there's a part of her character who kind of wants the fatalistic statements that she makes to Rhaenyra here to be true. It's a very human reaction, really. She would rather believe that this unstoppable force, the status quo, the patriarchy, has made things this way, rather than face that she was personally rejected. Nobody likes rejection, and it has to be particularly painful for someone as competent as Rainey's to have to consider that she personally had been rejected in favor of someone as weak and hapless as Viserys. Rhaenyra's line of, they rejected you, princess, must have been very hard to hear. I really look forward to how this relationship develops in time, uh, as Rhaenyra's status as heir is clearly not ironclad. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago... If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Okay, why don't we move on to the scene or scenes with Viserys and Alessant. And I want to say that there's a really cool word, Anogrion, and there's talk of blood mages, but I'm going to save that for the spoilery section and keep on the character analysis track here. So the king and the hand's daughter are growing close. While Otto Hightower was the one who set up these clandestine meetings in order to put forth his daughter as a potential queen, Alessant doesn't seem like she's an all-out seasoned manipulative game player at this point. She's not quite another Marjorie Tyrell from what we've seen of her so far, at least not yet. Emily Carey suggested in the in Inside the Episode featurette that her character is genuinely caring, and I thought that's how some of these this week's scenes between her and the king were portrayed. Viserys later mentions that his dead wife Emma lit up the place and let's face it there is something a bit sad about him reclusively and obsessively tending to his diorama in his dimly lit chambers not trying to hobby shame here but he does seem lonely and depressed so when Alison offers warmth whether it's in the form of a nice smile or a mended dragon action figure it's no wonder that registers with Viserys and Alison fixing that broken dragon is, of course, a great visual metaphor for her helping to heal Viserys, as our friend Tana Ford pointed out on Twitter. Alison, of course, is no stranger to grieving middle-aged men given her own mother has died. She obviously helped her father through the grieving process, and so she knows from experience how to be tactful and so on. Like I said, she's not in complete manipulation mode, but she also isn't naive either. If she can continue to flirt with a king who seems otherwise uninterested in women and quite reclusive, as we've said, and if he chooses to marry for his heart and not for pure politics, then she knows that she might be in pole position to be queen. Of course, the catch is that she's best friends with Viserys' daughter and heir, and if Otto's scheming stays on course, things are going to get very messy on both an interpersonal and political level. The Alessant viserys Renera triangle is becoming central to the core of this story, and it has everything in common with the typical love triangle found in so many dramas and stories, only with Renera obviously being Viserys' daughter here. Yeah, I agree that Allison is shown to be really empathetic and caring, especially in this episode. And there is an element of sympathy for her, much more than I expected to have. You know, as a having read Fire and Blood many times, I didn't plan on feeling positively. <laughs> but when you see her father manipulating her into this position and her clear discomfort, uh, which manifests in her poor shredded fingernails, uh, really do feel sorry for her on a on a lot of levels but one thing i just can't seem to get over is that she, you know she's 
aware of her father's intentions and of Viserys' growing attachment to her. But in all those months, she failed to sort of clue Rhaenyra in at all prior to Viserys asking her not to uh, mention their talks to Rhaenyra. And I guess, to be fair, it's probably very, very uncomfortable. And she does make this tiny hint in the sept by sort of saying, you know, your father's going to have to get remarried. Uh, but she's in an awkward position, so it's very tough, and she is a young girl. But obviously this isn't going to play well with her friend, who, with whom we noted um, really only in the last episode uh, and a few months earlier in story, she seemed to share this kind of deep, unrealized, sapphic attachment. So, you know, how it's it's not just going to be oh, my friend's marrying my dad, and that's weird. It's going to be a real emotional blow to Rhaenyra. So all in all, I do think that the Marjorie Tyrell comparison is apt, or it could be, not because I think that Allison is showing any signs of being, you know, this sort of player character yet, but more because neither did Marjorie when we first met her. Um, so I do appreciate the depth of characterization and what they're doing with this character. I think they're bringing a lot more of a lot of very thoughtful things to the surface more than what we would see in the book. So uh, starting with the conclusion of this episode, though, I can foresee a rather steep decline in my sympathies coming shortly, but we'll see. Maybe they'll continue to surprise us and we'll continue to have that sympathy. So is describing Alison a pawn who could be headed towards being a player is is that fair enough, do you think? Mm, yes, a brand new Ponta player. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Why don't we talk about the background of Daemon Targaryen and Dragonstone? Emily, why don't you take us away? Sure. Yeah, uh, Daemon's occupation of Dragonstone is an interesting interpretation of events in Fire and Blood. You know, there's some divergences from the book story here, as well as the creation of some show canon that the books never fully went into. So while being as spoiler-free as we can, we'll break some of those details and changes down here. First and foremost, the missive that Daemon left when he took the egg states that he'll be taking a second wife, the Lady Masaria, who is pregnant with his son. It is not until Rhaenyra reclaims the egg that we learn that Damon has essentially made this up. In Fire and Blood, uh, Masaria apparently is with child and miscarries after Damon loses the egg and sends her away. But here in the show, Masaria says that she made sure long ago she would never be troubled by pregnancy, and there's no indication that she and Damon actually part ways or that she departs for lease after this, this scene. I can get behind this change, especially because we've just dealt with a really traumatic birth in episode one. I think, you know, it's fine to take a little bit of a break from that theme. There'll be more of it later. It also serves to paint the picture of Damon as this little brother who's desperate for his elder brother's attention. So desperate that he concocts a wedding and a family with Masaria that she's apparently completely in the dark about until that confrontation on the bridge. I, I know uh, Lady Gwen has some thoughts on this, too, so. I want to add that this is a change that I'm pretty curious about because, in my opinion, Masaria's miscarriage in Fire and Blood is one of her motivating factors for a lot of things that come later. Without being spoilery, I will refer you to our Dance of the Dragon episodes where I talk a lot about her bearing a grudge against House Targaryen for this very event. So I'm going to be watching closely how this plays out with her character going forward. And also, 
I thought it was interesting to see the showrunners coming down so firmly on the side of polygamy was normal for Valerians, since this was one of those eternal arguments amongst fans back in the day when I first joined the fandom. Were the Conqueror and by extension Magor simply outliers to actual Valyrian tradition, or was this a tradition that simply fell away when the Targaryens began coexisting with the Faith? I think obviously there's been some more, uh, you know, exposition on that in the past few years, but uh, it does, it is, and remains important in A Song of Ice and Fire due to the speaking of triangles, the triangle of Rhaegar, Ilya, and Lyanna. So uh, this reference. Could it definitely made my ears perk up. It's one of those things that has to be established in order for the main story to proceed the way we all suppose it will. <laughs> now, um, at Dragonstone, we again see Damon leveraging his command of the Gold Cloaks to augment his power. While in theory the Gold Cloaks serve and protect King's Landing, Damon has enough of a loyal following within them that he's essentially got mercenaries as he digs in at Dragonstone. Loath as I am to say that Otto Hightower makes a good point, him calling out the Gold Cloaks for abandoning their post to serve Damon is correct, especially since Damon uh, would have been replaced as acting commander of the City Watch by this time. This inclusion not only leads to a balanced, dramatic standoff at the bridge, but it also cements Damon as a character with enough charisma to win deeply loyal supporters, even when he's acting unlawfully. I want to point out that Damon has, of course, manipulated Viserys enough to get a reaction, and he knows it. When Otto claims that Viserys would never debase himself enough to come to Dragonstone, the Lord Commander Harold Westerling can't help but give the lie away with his facial reactions. Not only did Damon get to Viserys, but by nicking Dreamfire's egg meant for Viserys' son, Prince Balon, he's managed to provoke his niece Rhaenyra into action as well. Her anger at the small council about the egg is the tipping point that leads to this confrontation and is no doubt a motivating force behind her decision to go to Dragonstone herself. Okay, I just wanted to tag on that the City Watch on Dragonstone is obviously a huge change from the books. Gold cloaks never leave King's Landing in Fire and Blood or any other Westerosi story, nor was Damon ever this close to outright treason in this way. This change is obviously for straight-up dramatic purposes, so nothing wrong with that. And another similar change in this sequence is identifying the stolen egg as coming from Dreamfire. Besides being a nice way to introduce another dragon into the cast, it's actually an Easter egg for book readers because it's heavily implied in Fire and Blood that Dreamfire is also responsible for those three eggs that will one day belong to none other than Daenerys Targaryen. So that was a, a great way to wink and connect the two shows together and the canons of course okay so with a bit of background about dragonstone why don't we talk about the the big scene one of the complaints i've seen leveled at game of thrones from show watchers and book nerds alike is that too many scenes are shot in small dimly lit rooms so it's a challenge to the writers to offset that claustrophobic feeling by bringing some of the conversations outside and giving us beautiful or inspiring scenery once in a while to capture our imaginations and remind us of the wonder of George's larger world. 
And the scene on Dragonstone where Otto went to retrieve the dragon's egg from Damon did not disappoint. It began with a long VFX shot taking us up from the coast, up and up, past the blackened walls of Dragonstone and through the fog and low-lying low clouds with subsequent aerial shots further establishing the scene. Finally, we settled by a meandering wall where Otto was about to confront Damon. So with thick fog blanketing the landscape, the setting was truly stunning, immersive fantasy television at its very best. And this is the beauty of the Levston VR studio you've heard Lady Gwyn mention a few times now. It allows them to show these expansive and gorgeous settings without ever leaving the soundstage. So when we see Rhaenyra eventually come gliding through the clouds on Cyrax like a shark through water, it really is breathtaking. And like I said, this offsets the scenes in the dark chambers and council rooms somewhat. More of these imaginative settings, please. They really satisfy the world-building fan in me, and I'm sure you guys feel the same. But now, I, I, let's why don't we rewind a little bit and talk about how this scene played out and how the negotiations went, Lady Wynne. Well, Otto obviously didn't make any great headway with Damon on that bridge, and one really has to wonder what he expected. When he uh, stated his intention of going to Dragonstone rather than Viserys, my first thought was, have you met Damon? <laughs> like, I just, I did not like his implication that Damon actually meant harm to his brother, nor I think did Rhaenyra, who really seemed mainly just upset about the egg and the fact that he took Balon's egg. So things are going pretty badly for Otto. Caraxes had taken up a position near the bridge and it looked like Otto's mission was either going to literally go down in flames or he was going to have to just kind of slink back to King's Landing defeated. Not really a good look, especially given the fact that Corlys had pointed out earlier in the episode that there are people watching from outside the realm who might seek to take advantage of any perceived weakness coming from the Iron Throne. And actually, given how predictable this face-off between Otto and Damon was and how it would play out, it seems to me to be part and parcel of the hand just poisoning Viserys against his brother. Yet another reason to really dislike him and wonder what his motives were here. Did he intend to just stir the pot, make a bad situation worse, and thereby force Viserys to take real action against Damon? I don't know. You guys, uh, you guys decide. <laughs> but then... We get Rhaenyra shows up on Cyrax. Uh, she has taken it upon herself to do exactly what she suggested in the first scene of the episode, use dragons as a show of force. Only in this case, she's showing her uncle who she is. She's the princess of Dragonstone. She's a dragon, dragon rider. She's not afraid of him in the slightest. She comes and they, they have a chat in High Valyrian and Basically, she tells him that he's in her castle and he should probably leave. There's really no sense of true danger or rancor here. It's just Rhaenyra telling her uncle that he doesn't belong here and give her brother's egg back and stop being so antagonistic to her. She actually challenges him and says, I'm here. If you have a problem with me, go ahead, kill me. But it's obvious that he has no intention of doing so. We see the rapport between these two that we mentioned in the previous episode. It's again on display. And Rhaenyra accomplishes easily 
what Otto just nearly got fried attempting to do, retrieving the egg and getting Damon to stand down. So besides being another opportunity to show this relationship that exists between Rhaenyra and Damon, uh, this moment hopefully puts Otto on alert about Rhaenyra. This is the second time in this episode that she's outmaneuvered him. Okay, so that was a, a great scene and... Thanks for that analysis, Lady Gwen. Why don't we move on and talk about Viserys and his counsellors? Emily, I know you've got a lot to say about these scenes. Sure, yeah. In this episode, we get more time with all the members of the small council, or nearly all of them, you know, further informing the audience how Viserys interacts with each of them, as well as their individual functions and motivations. We've already spent a good deal of time today on the Master of Ships, Corlys Valerian, so I'll move on to the others. Following the Valerian's proposal to uh, of their daughter Lena to be Viserys' new wife, we see King Viserys attended by Maester, Grandmaster Melos and Sir Otto as he receives some dubious healing. Viserys reveals the proposal, and Otto instantly calls it an overreach. For being such a subtle political player that he, you know, was touted to be, he's being pretty overt here in his flip-flopping from this deep pressing concerns over the succession last episode to suggesting that the king not be so hasty now that one of his own rivals has been presented his daughter as a match. Viserys does push back here a little bit, but doesn't really notice the hypocrisy like the viewer does, I don't think. We also learned a good deal more about the Maester this past, uh, this last episode, actually, uh, episode one. So I won't linger on him too much. I just want to give him like kind of a hearty F you uh, who, for saying what does it matter to the king's concern over Rhaenyra's feelings about him getting remarried. Once again, the Grand Maester shows himself to be a staunch upholder of the patriarchy. Not only does he deny women agency, but he lacks empathy for women altogether and considers their feelings wholly irrelevant. Very the men are talking sweetie vibes. <laughs> I'd also like to point out that he's not a very good healer either, considering that uh, as uh, Egg Six, one of our moderators, put on Twitter, uh, you know, it was a small nick on his pinky six months ago, and now it's like rotting off, uh, festering over six months' time. So, not a lot of faith in his feeling healing capabilities. And the other counselor we see more of in this episode is Lord Lionel Strong. Lionel is a master of laws and lord of Harrenhal. In Foreign Blood, he's described as a giant of a man normally quite reserved in council in spite of his exhaustive knowledge of law gained during his time at the Citadel where he forged six links of a maester's chain before returning to Harrenhal. In one scene, we see Viserys seek Lionel privately to get his counsel regarding the proposed match with Lena Valerion. His advice is solid. He points out her very suitable Valerian heritage, how the match would unite competing claims and join the two leading Valerian houses. It almost seems like he's convinced the king that the Valerian match is the way to go, but their meeting is interrupted with the news that Rhaenyra has returned from Dragonstone, which is really news since Viserys didn't even know that she'd left. And next time we see Lord Lionel, it's, of course, at another council meeting. And the subject, once again, is the king's marriage. OK, let's talk about Alison and Viserys. We've already talked a lot about them, but there is a lot more to say. 
I love the scene where Viserys shocks the council by announcing his intention to marry Alicent. The glorious thing about it was that so many of the people directly affected by the decision were in the room hearing this news together. Having witnessed the intimate framing of their Alison and Viserys scenes where, you know, their hands touch and they make this awkward eye contact. And like I said, she thoughtfully brings him, brings this modelling nerd, a model stone dragon. I don't think it was a surprise to any viewers that Viserys picked Alison over 12-year-old Lena. However, it was a surprise to most of the people in the room and the council. First of all, when Viserys was saying the words, I noticed that the camera was focused squarely on the shocked face of Rhaenyra as she finally understood what had what she was left blind to. As we've discussed earlier in the episode, we saw Rhaenyra and Alicent together in the Sept. And here again, we're reminded of just how close these girls are. I find their scenes very intimate and the scenes between Alison and Viserys are increasingly intimate and then Rhaenyra's scenes with her father are intimate too in a different sort of way. So altogether the writers have been working on this triangle of Alison, Viserys and Rhaenyra like I said, as the core of the character drama. The groundwork for these dynamics are being laid and it's setting up the show for a large conflict I'm sure everyone can sense that. And obviously, there might be a succession struggle now the king is to have a queen, a situation prefigured earlier when Rhaenys described the order of things to Rhaenyra in no uncertain terms. So, yeah, Rhaenyra gives a long, exasperated look at Alessandre when she realises her father is going to marry her best friend on so many levels how weird is is this for Rhaenyra? Viserys has made this crucial decision and I think every viewer can sense that it might turn out to be catastrophic for his daughter and heir. We're left to wonder if Viserys and Alicent had slept together the night before. I have seen some discussion about this on social media, on Twitter. Um, given Otto's suggestion to his daughter that she visit the king that evening. And remember in Fire and Blood book canon, Mushroom believes or says he believes these nightly visits began even before Emma's death, although that's clearly not the case here. But we can wonder if there was just a shade of the Rob Stark situation where Rob jumped into a marriage with Jane Westerling stroke Talisa because he'd slept with her and when she was comforting him and sub subsequently he felt compelled to up sense of, uh, uphold a sense of honour. I don't think it's quite like for like with Rob Stark, but maybe just a, a smidge of that. But whatever the case, he is clearly choosing what he wants because of his own feelings for Alicent. Yeah, too, I like that uh, comparison because here you got, you know, two kings kind of doing what they want instead of what is clearly by all accounts and according to all of their counselors uh, for the good of their kingdom. So however it p played out for Viserys and Alicent, I think it's still a pretty good comparison. So as much as Rhaenyra's reaction going from smiling and I got the real sense that she was kind of nodding along thinking her father was about to announce his intention of marrying her cousin Lena, 
uh, to surprise and then outright horror when he said Allison's name. Uh, that was really the centerpiece of the scene, but she wasn't the only one to react. We see Corley's Valerian also clearly surprised at the king's sudden announcement that he's made a decision. Uh, he doesn't know this is coming, but he seems like he's about to prepare himself to hear his daughter's name. And when that isn't what happens, he storms out, apparently resigning his position on the small council, which allows us to highlight another significant change that's been made from the source material for the show. Uh, in Fire and Blood, Corlys was master of ships for Chaharis in 92 AC, the first time his wife's claim was passed over, and that is when he resigned in protest. There's no indication that he ever rejoined the council of Jaharis or Viserys in Fire and Blood. The only master of ships, in fact, noted under Viserys is Sir Tyland Lannister. Obviously, uh, this change for the show allows Corlys to get lots of screen time and significant interactions between the king and the sea snake uh, get to be seen on screen, and it also... Know, helps set up the coming conflict in the Stepstones while still keeping that tight focus on the goings-on in King's Landing. In Fire and Blood, Corlys was no less angry about this marriage to Allison and Lena being slighted or rejected, but it's only noted that his affront really just led directly to a meeting between him and the similarly outraged Prince Damon, which we'll be discussing shortly. While we indirectly see all the counselors react to this news with varying levels of surprise or shock, the singular exception is one Otto Hightower, uh, who we see sitting in his chair with his daughter behind him, looking really for all the world like butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. There's this tiny smile and a little shift of his eyes is all that we get to reveal the absolute sense of triumph that he must have felt in that moment. Uh, he's In this moment, he's rid himself of Lord Corley's Valerian, who has been a thorn in his side consistently throughout you know all these small council scenes that we've seen so far, challenging his authority and just being a general pain in the butt. Uh, he's repaid Rhaenyra, for those moments of triumph at his expense, those that we saw in this very episode. And he's placed his daughter in position to be the highest lady in the land. And of course, obviously, he thinks that uh, he's going to get a grandson as king, future grandson as king. So I think everything really must seem to be coming up roses for Otto. And I want to know that, did anyone else find that little smirk on his face particularly punchable you know you know i did <laughs> yeah i know you did i know we all did uh, okay so i think we should move on and talk about the last scene because that's a lot of setup happened at the end last week the final hook was the bit about the prophecy and that got everyone you know wanting to see more of this show this week they went with a a reveal with who Corliss was talking to so Emily why don't you take us away with Damon and Corliss making a plan sure so the episode closes at a new location high tide on Driftmark which is the primary seat of House Valarian a castle built by Corliss to replace the ancestral seat of his family castle driftmark and showcase the wealth of uh that he's accumulated on his famous nine voyages 
I've already talked a lot about Corliss's history in this episode and in previous ones, so I'm not going to rehash here. But uh, I will say it was very cool to see some of High Tide. I know, Gwen, you're looking forward to the exterior. But this scene, it starts with some of the Lord of the Tide's collected treasures. This is a great nod to his voyages without having to spend a lot of time of, uh, or exposition on it. A bit of that show-not-tell that lends legitimacy to the dialogue to come in this scene, which I will let Gwen dig into. Yeah, I, you know, as you said, I am very excited to see more of High Tide, uh, especially the exterior scenes. But this was really fascinating. The different ambiance of the setting is immediately evident. We knew right away that we were somewhere else, somewhere new. That barnacle-encrusted skull and the variety of other treasures. Uh, I, I know that I've seen stills of the Driftwood Throne which was not in this particular scene, at least not as far as I noticed, which, according to legend, was a gift from the Merlin King to the Valerians who settled in Westeros uh, quite some time before their Valerian cousins, the Targaryens, arrived, actually, according to family lore. So I mentioned a few minutes ago that in Fire and Blood, Viserys' betrothal to Alicent resulted in a clandestine meeting between his brother Daemon and Lord Corlys, and now we get to see that on screen. In Fire and Blood, Damon's reaction to the news of his brother's new marriage is reported like this. In the Vale, Prince Damon reportedly whipped the serving man who brought the news to him within an inch of his life. So Viserys plus Alicent is clearly the motivating factor in Damon's decision to join Corlys here and eventually in his war. In the show, we can assume that Damon was still on Dragonstone when the news arrived, uh, and no mention is made of any serving men being harmed. So we see this discussion playing out about Viserys's lack of appreciation of these two men. And while Damon is initially reluctant to hear Corlys criticize his brother, he's clearly interested in what's being suggested. Corliss's statement to Damon, we are the realm's second sons, ties into something Damon himself said to Viserys about Otto Hightower in episode one, a second son who stands to inherit nothing he doesn't seize for himself. Last week, I noted that this was equally true about Damon, and here we get Corliss basically saying the same thing. It's clearly directed at Damon because Corliss himself isn't a second son at all although he and his house are being marginalized by Otto Hightower's bid for power for his own family. And I do think that this is going to be a very strong theme going forward. And I'm not sure if anything will come of the reference, but it's probably worth reminding you all that the Second Sons are in a Sosi sellsword company. They figure prominently in um, Danny's marine storyline in A Song of Ice and Fire. But they, they, it, the company itself was founded in the aftermath of the doom. So they've been around for a very long time and would have been known to both Damon and Corlys. So I, you know, I think it would be great if something came of that reference, but whether it does or not remains to be seen, obviously. So altogether, I thought this was a powerful ending with that final hook reveal that Damon and Corlys will likely be working together and setting up the action to come in the next few episodes. And a lot has been said about Matt Smith's excellent portrayal of Damon, and I thought Steve Toussaint looked great as Corliss all the way through this episode and is bringing great gravitas to the role. It really saddens us that Toussaint has received 
vile racist abuse on social media in universe in this made-up fantasy show Collis's mother is from the summer isles which is more than enough explanation for this casting but no matter the explanation there's no justification for mistreating talented actors because of the color of their skin moving on and with that all understood and on a lighter note let's do a couple of our fun featurettes beginning with dragon watch Okay, Yoke Boy, in Dragon Watch this week, we see more of Caraxes and Cyrax with that great action scene on Dragonstone and several mentions of Valyrian and Vagar, including when little Lena Valerian asked Viserys lots of questions about her favorite thing, dragons. Also, this is the first time we hear about Viserys' aunt Rhaena Targaryen's dragon Dreamfire, who apparently is responsible for that egg that Daemon stole. More Dreamfire, please! But I'm still waiting for someone to mention that the Targaryen Valerians have dragons of their own. Is this being kept quiet for dramatic purposes, or is it just a factor of the way the story's unfolding? More on that in the spoiler section. Yeah, my notes on Dragon Watcher as follows. On Twitter, I just tweeted out, Caraxes is the most penis-necked dragon in history. So that, that's all I've got to offer this week. Emily, what have you got to say on Dragon Watch? Oh my gosh, let's not shame our long boy too much. I've heard it's the, you know, si- the, the size and the shape don't matter nearly as much as how you use it, right? You know, based on trailers, I don't think we'll have to wait much longer to see Caraxes or his leg wings in action or his or his penis neck, I guess. <laughs> so. Looking forward to the next one. Okay, why don't we... Why don't we do something we did last week, but we're going to do it every single week now a game called Champ or Chump. So each week we pick a, a character that we think is the champ of the week for you know doing a good deed or being heroic or whatever, whatever reason you can come up with, and also a chump who is this week's loser. So I think there's always going to be a long parade of chumps probably every week, but <laughs> there can only be one. So who is your champ of the week, Emily? Yeah, I have to say it's easier to pick the champ than the chump for sure. Uh, My pick for champ is Rhaenyra for de-escalating Dragonstone without bloodshed and for being arguably more kingly than her father or her uncle. That's a good choice. And why don't you take the chump, Lady Gwen? Who's your chump? Well, we were saying before we started that it could literally probably always be Otto Hightower, but that would be boring. So (laughs) this week's chump of the week is Viserys for getting betrothed to his daughter's best friend. A decision that is surely going to cause big problems going forward. So you you guys can send us your champ or chumps in the chat or on Twitter. We're very active on Twitter. So we're at Radio Westeros on Twitter if you want to shoot, shoot us your champ or chumps. And now our final section. If you are not a book reader and you don't want to get spoiled... Now is a time when you can you can look away because it's spoilers all book time, Lady Gwen. Spoilers all books. Okay, so now we get to talk about things that we were sort of holding onto during the, the stream that we didn't want to spoil people for, but you know, they sort of build up and you you we really want to talk about certain things. So let's get some stuff off our chests. 
Why don't we start with you, Emily? I, I know that you had some spoilery things to discuss. Sure. So uh, like last week, I'm going to focus my spoilers on highlighting a specific character and how their portrayal so far varies from the books, both outright canon and our own expectations. This week, I want to talk about the Grand Maester, Melos. We've seen him in two episodes now, and by all accounts, he has been a poor healer and a staunch defender of the patriarchy. He is not only unconcerned about the feelings of the women he serves, but he seems to think everyone else should view them as little more than property as well. Melos is the author of that famous quote about Lenor Valarian's sexual preferences. What of it? I am not fond of fish, but when fish is served, I eat it, suggesting that everyone should just get over the trivial matter of someone's sexuality or sexual orientation and do their noble duty. Easy to say from the sidelines, my guy. With the show departing from the whole unreliable multi-narrator format that leans heavily on the writings of Mushroom as well as Grandmaster Melos and other maesters, viewers are left to kind of wade through the canon unfolding on the screen versus the version or versions that they've seen on page. Uh, it's worth noting that women like Allison, Maseria, Rhaenyra, and more are often blamed for much of the conflict that we're going to see moving forward. Allison is framed as this conniving evil stepmother figure, but as Gwyn discussed earlier, you know, it's playing out pretty differently on screen thus far. While the show is certainly allowed to establish its own canon, I think we can also agree that it's likely a misogynist like Melos uh, being one of the primary sources on this era that has had a noted impact on certain characterizations, particularly of the female characters. But what else can we say about Melos on screen versus his fire and blood counterpart? Firstly, it seems like Melos was combined with the previous Grand Maester Runciter, who served Jaehaerys starting in 101 AC and then on to Viserys from there. Little is said of his time serving King Viserys, although it's assumed that he was the maester who oversaw Queen Emma's fatal delivery and the death of Prince Balon, uh, which is something that happened in 105 AC in the books. So we've probably lost Runciter to the law of conservation of characters, but I think that's fine. Most of Melos' big moments uh, in the books, aside from his abysmal healing of Viserys' finger, are still to come. I do think that we'll see him champion Rhaenyra's match with Laenor, uh, as he's already shown to favor stronger ties between House Targaryen and House Valerian through that proposed marriage of Viserys and Lena. Maybe we'll get to see that delightful quote I mentioned from earlier. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Melos is also a commentator on the deaths of Lionel and Harwin Strong, and his version of events seems to favor the idea that King Viserys may have orchestrated a fire at Harrenhal to take out Sir Harwin and to cover up Rhaenyra's tryst with him and her subsequent bastard sons. Was this based on evidence, or again was the Grand Maester reaching for the reasoning that could somehow be pinned back down on the wickedness of a woman? We'll have to wait and see, I suppose, and we have a few more episodes to wait as we haven't even seen Sir Harwin on screen yet. So yeah, that's that's my analysis on the Maesters so far. Gwen, what kind of spoilerific stuff do you have? Ooh, I have. I promised I would talk about more about Lena and and her fascination with dragons. When she walks with Viserys, she asks him mostly about dragons. I mean, she sort of says the things her parents told her to say. But then she obviously has loads of questions about dragons. She asks about Beleriand, but she wants to know about Vagar and where is Vagar? 
Viserys tells her that Vagar has made a nest somewhere on the shores of Blackwater Bay, and Lena mentions, I think, fisherfolk hearing dragon song. That sounds really sad. And Viserys tells her that even dragons can feel lonely, which, given the Targaryen propensity for referring to themselves as dragons, is probably a reference to himself as king. I'm sure he's very lonely. But uh, that also functions as foreshadowing, since we know from Fire and Blood that Lena will very shortly claim Vagar as her own. In fact, in the book, she's actually already claimed Vagar by this point in the story. Uh, but I do feel like the showrunners are going to be using this event as a direct answer to Viserys choosing Alicent over Lena, a way of pointing out his error in terms of bloodline and these symbols of power. I also mentioned that there is this kind of slow teasing of dragons and dragon riders, which so far has kept casual viewers in the dark as to the fact that House Valerian has their own dragons. So I, I do think that this is intentional, most likely. Uh, not just the Lena Vagar reveal, but also the fact that Rhaenys and her son Lenor are dragon riders. So when we get to see this family in action, whether it's simply flying their weapons of mass destruction around on joyrides or joining in the eventual fighting on the Stepstones, I think that we will truly understand the power of House Valerian and the real tactical error that Viserys made in spurning an alliance with them. Uh, so, and speaking of Viserys, we've mentioned a couple times uh, his wounded finger that just won't heal. Uh, it's actually worse than not healing. It's become necrotic, and it's really gross. Uh, this is apparently another injury that he's taken from sitting on the Iron Throne. We think probably the same finger that we saw him cut in episode one, uh, in spite of the passage of time. So six months he's been dealing with this. Uh, you know, a lot is made of the fact that the throne cuts people that it means to reject as if it's some sort of sentient object. Uh, but given how many people actually get cut by it, I mean, I'm not sure if maybe we can't just say that it was a really dumb idea to make a big chair out of swords. I don't know. Um, that seems more logical to me than the throne has a mind of its own. <laughs> Anyways, I digress. Uh, the wounded finger is a, a plot point from Fire and Blood, but it comes much later in the story. Uh, it's actually part of the continuing rivalry that grows up between Rhaenyra and Alicent. Uh, in the books, Melos uses some sort of ointments to treat it, but you know, the finger becomes necrotic. Actually, it's two fingers in the book, and the infection is actually threatening the king's life. Uh, he's near death, or he's in very dire straits, and Rhaenyra brings her own maester from Dragonstone, Gerardus, who hopefully is going to be introduced as a character later this season. I would expect it this season. If not, then early, definitely early next. Uh, and Gerardus solves the problem by amputating two fingers. That's it. Done. Solved. Problem solved. Which saves the king's life. But Alicent goes on to make this huge deal about Rhaenyra's maester disfiguring the king. Um, as if the lack of two fingers, you know, as payment for his life was something that they should really be worried about. So <laughs> I mean, I just think this is another reason to call Malos a hack. And while this is the second time we've seen Viserys with a wound that will not heal, I found it very interesting that he used that exact phrase to describe his bereavement and mourning for Emma in this episode. 
uh, this is this sort of physical manifestation of psychological distress really keeps coming up. And I think it's sounds like it's going to be continue to be a theme uh, throughout the series. So keep your eyes on that. Yoke Boy, what do you got? My spoilery discussion, I wanted to to mention the scene where Viserys and Alessandro we're talking beside the diorama of Valeria that we know is now we now know is the intro sequence. So Viserys mentions something he calls the Anogrion, and I find that terrifically exciting. A new word. And it's apparently where the blood mages worked their craft in Valeria. So the term was coined by fantasy language consultant. David J. Peterson, he's the guy that also did the Dothraki language and he's working with the High Valyrian here. And the word anogrion means temple in High Valyrian, but is also linked to the word for blood. And we think the fact that blood magic is linked to Valyrian religion could be really telling. It shows, you know, how deeply rooted blood magic is in their society. Peterson added that anogrion is an old word related to even older practices. So that's certainly something to think about. We've known for a long time that Valyrians were interested in magic. We've been told that there were spells involved in Valyrian steel, for example. But Viserys mentioning the anogrion is exciting because we've never heard this term before. It's interesting to hear specifically that blood mages had their own order at the heart of the city. Of course, there's show canon and book canon, so I acknowledge that. But if this is a detail that comes from George, many questions arise. What exactly were the blood mages doing? And, you, you know... As a pertinent detail, does this tie in with dragon riding? We talked a little about this last week, whether dragon riding is a matter of blood blood is still a huge talking point from book canon. And I believe that George has intentionally cultivated this, this debate and this mystery and that he would be delighted to know that it's a hotly debated topic and still no, no one can be 100% certain either way. With the talk of Valyrian blood mages being so important, it begs the question, could the Valyrian dragon riders have somehow transferred an actual drop of dragon's blood into their own bloodstreams? Some of the arguments arguments I would make for this case of Valyrians having a literal drop of dragon blood would be as follows. They have these magic and prophetic dragon dreams. Why? What causes them? Where did that come from? Uh, Targaryens do have a history of unusual births, including all manner of dragony features like wings and scales. And finally, Targaryens have a tra tradition of intermarriage and incest. George has said that the Targaryen practice of incest was intended to keep their bloodlines pure, to help them better control their dragons. That's a quote. And to add to this, our friends at History of Westeros got this from George when they recently interviewed him. And definitely look that up. Check out Aziz Nashea interviewing George R. R. Martin. That's unbelievable. Here's the quote. The Valyrians have some things so we can control dragons. We don't want to lose that ability. Not everyone can do that. 
so we better keep it in the family, so to speak, or at least with the other dragon-riding families. Now there was, I haven't gone much into it, but there was another very powerful group in Valyria who were not necessarily the dragon riders, and those were the people who practiced blood magic, and which, you know, there's some overlap in the Venn diagram with the dragon riders, but not necessarily complete overlap. And then there were just the regular people. There are a lot of slaves because it was a slave society. There are a lot of poor people. I think of ancient Rome or something like that. I don't know that they would have, they would have any, reason, any reason to practice incest. So outside of the, the dragon families, you, you know, George is saying that there was no, no reason to, to do this intermarriage. So altogether with, with George's words on the subjects, you can make an interesting case at least that those blood mages at the Inaugurion were could have been at some point trying to infuse dragon's blood into Valyrians. I know there are lots of people who don't like this idea or don't believe it, and that's fine. Like I said, it's still something that's up for debate, but definitely worth thinking about this. And really it would give an extra layer of depth to the opening sequence, which did put so much emphasis on blood and bloodlines. And in mentioning this opening sequence, we appear to have come a full circle, so I think let's wrap it up for tonight. And a big thank you to Emily of the Eerie. She is at Emily of the Eerie on Twitter. Give her a follow. She deserves it. She's done some great analysis with us and she'll be here for the rest of show season. Did you enjoy yourself, Emily? I have loved it. My dogs continue to want to join the show. So uh, <laughs> Cassidy says hi. If you follow me on Twitter, there's a lot of A Song of Ice and Fire, a lot of memes, lots of dogs. <laughs> Okay, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Westeros for our main account. You can get to the other accounts via that. So go to at Radio Westeros on Twitter. If you do enjoy the show, please consider becoming a, a patron. And you, as Lady Gwyn said at the start, there's all sorts of perks, early access to our real episodes and so on. So check that out. Patreon.com slash Radio Westeros, I think it is. So go and have a look at our campaign. And on the subject of Patreon, why don't we end this broadcast with credits of our Valyrian Steel and our Castle Steel patrons. Thanks to you and thanks to everyone watching tonight. It's been a really enjoyable show and we hope to see you next week. Radio Westeros is supported by patrons. Thanks to all of you, including our Valyrian Steel patrons, Aerodo, Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Aka from Ashai, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Hortense of Ashai, Arshia, Blight Spirit, Cabot the Unfrozen, Marja the Mage, David, Dean, Drew, James K, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, JM, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Epimetheus, Yuna of House Haiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infandaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Luke, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, The Sithorian, Sally, Sheila, Tristis Lorraine, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dyerlis of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. 
and our Castle Steel patrons, AJ, Aegon the Sixth, the only Arsling you need, Alex, Allie B, Allie C, Oakenfist, Bran the Builder, Amber, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint the Andal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadogan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Esme, Liza, Emily of the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Archmaster Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Brendan B. Fish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Cenarion the White Storm, Julie Bath of Tarth, Judson, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Mathos of House Baratheon of Dragonstone, Armed with the Valyrian Sword Malice, Tree Girl, Sir Galahu of what? Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Nessie the Questing Beast, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Mats, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, as well as Lady Beatrix of House Grey, Maester Mary, Michael M, Anime Lover Nicole, Nimble Nick One Eric, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Philip, Paul B, Paul H, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Sherry, Cern, Kaiser Susie of the Free Folk, Terry, Sir Terence Knight of the Cedars, Theo the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hema Helmet, the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Warren Halfhand, and Yvonne. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Visit patreon.com slash radioesteros for details. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you again next week. Bye for now.